Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he said, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, uh, obviously the seasons are changing, which is quite evident. And uh, with that, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask the Lord's help as we look at this passage together. Please bow with me once again. 
Lord, we know that you tell us in your word that even as you send the snow and the rain to water the earth, Lord, that as your word goes forth, it does not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which you intend it, Lord. And so we trust that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we do pray as it goes forth, Lord, even as we've heard it read and as we've sung its truths together, that our hearts would be receptive, Lord, to your spirit's prodding and leading, Lord, to the, the renewal of our minds as we meditate upon your word, Lord, that we would behold your wisdom and glory and, Lord, the, the wonder of this plan of redemption that you have, Lord, unfolded moment by moment. Um, even uh, many years prior to the coming of Christ, you laid down the foundation and groundwork so that we might recognize him when he comes, that we might behold him and receive from him the fullness of grace and truth. And so I ask your help as I speak, that it would be in the power of your spirit to the good of your people and just for attentive hearts from the youngest to the oldest, it would be ministered to by you, Lord, and through your word um, working within us by the help of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this now for Jesus' sake. Amen. May be seated. Thank you. So the title this morning we're looking at is The Search for the True King. And uh, could be said that Saul was the king that the people desired, as we have seen. In many ways, the king the people deserved. David is the king of the Lord's choosing. And in many ways, the king the people don't deserve. But we see God set up this search for the king in a very unique way. And in Proverbs 25.2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. And it has pleased the Lord over thousands of years to reveal this plan that he set forth even in the garden after the man and the woman sinned against God and disobeyed his word. God gave a gospel promise. There was good news in the midst of the consequences for sin that one day one would come, come from the, the woman, a seed who would crush the serpent's head, though the serpent would bite his heel. And so this is the question of the scriptures. Who is this one? When will he be revealed? When is his coming? And God is pleased to slowly over time make this truth known to us to reveal this true king and we see God's commitment to this plan though man rages against God and nations rise up against the Lord he is committed right through the midst of their depravity and their corruption God preserves a line to bring forth this true king and obviously in the life of David we have a type of Christ, the true king to come. Saul, in many ways, is then set up as the anti-king, the anti-type, who becomes a persecutor of the true king. But we are searching for this one whom the Father, whom God, has set his gaze upon. David, in many ways, is a trailer of what is to come. Maybe you have 
You know, I remember as a, a kid reading even, say, the Chronicles of Narnia, and then it comes out that they're going to make it into a movie, and the first thing they do is they send out the trailer, a few-minute clip or a little bit of a glimpse of what is going to be in the movie. And so you have this foretaste of what is coming, and it's meant to, um, to get you excited about it. And, and in many ways, God does this time and time again throughout redemptive history, giving us a picture of what is to come so that when the reality arrives, we do not miss it. And if we're honest with ourselves, like Samuel and like the people of Israel, we are prone to miss the true king. We are prone to distraction. We're prone to be impressed by the the leaders of clay who are all around us and and like to remind us of their authority and their glory. And and we can be tempted to, to not only miss the king, but to go after those who are not of God, who do not come as the light. So we must pay attention to the clues that God gives if we're going to behold the king, if we're going to truly see him as the Lord identifies him. And so this morning, I want to lay out for us four clues that God gives in the search for this true king, the king of Israel, and this pointing us forward to Christ, the eternal king. Now, we start off in the beginning of the passage here. Samuel is mourning still over what has happened with Saul. We must not forget that for Samuel, this was devastating on a number of levels. First of all, he was the one who commended Saul to the people. He anointed Saul. And so in some ways, his own reputation and ministry um, might be seen as affected by the failure of Saul. Now, we don't see in Samuel a selfish sort of motive for his grieving, but this had to be part of of his own um, discouragement and sorrow. Is this how his prophetic ministry would end? As the one to appoint the faulty king of Israel who would disobey God? But Samuel also warned the people that to do this, to go down this road, would only bring harm. And so, no doubt, there's a sense of frustration ministering his entire life to these people who, in their hardness of heart, do what he recommends not to do and then reap the consequences of now a man, Saul, clutching to power and and, and becoming more and more of a tyrant as he is unwilling to yield his will to the will of God. And so God comes to Samuel in this a wonderful way, and, and with, a, with a firm but, I would say, even gracious rebuke. He's, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? The time of mourning is gone. And this statement to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. And he sends Samuel on a mission. And I appreciate Samuel's just eagerness to obey the Lord. We don't get questions at this point. Samuel doesn't complain and say, oh, really, like, I'm going to do this again? This, this, this didn't go so well last time that I went out and anointed a king. We just see Samuel with a willingness to obey the word of God, to do what he has instructed, and leave the results to God. So uh, what's also interesting here as we begin this search for the king is we were told earlier that Samuel anointed Saul with a flask of oil. Here we have him filling a horn of oil, and he is to go with this horn to anoint the king. And this is subtle, but especially uh, for the the Hebrew reader, they would not miss these sort of of indications that something significant is happening. We've talked before about the picture of the horn, uh, of that of strength. And if you remember back in chapter 2, 
in Hannah's prayer, she said uh, in in, uh, chapter 2, she said, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And here we have Samuel now going with the horn of oil to seek out the king that God is going to reveal to him. And so it's a wonderful picture of, of a, a change in, in the plan. There is something significant happening. The horn of oil is filled. Samuel is rising up. He is going out in search of this king. And the first clue that we have then of the identity of this true king is that he is going to come from the line of Jesse and he is going to be found in Bethlehem. Now, of course, for us, we immediately begin to, to connect the dots, but I want you to keep in mind that we're talking here probably around a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ. And God is setting up these clues, these indications, so that we might also recognize the one to whom David points. But for Samuel, he is to go to the house of Jesse and he is to go to Bethlehem and there he will be um, shown who this king is. Now, I know we've looked at the map before. I didn't uh, bring, bring that along today. But if you recall, there's something important uh, to note here as well. That Samuel is in the northern tribes. And Saul is, in many ways, the king of the northern tribes from Benjamin. And as we have seen throughout Samuel, whenever there's a, a listing of soldiers especially, we've always had this number given of Israel and then a number given of Judah. And there's already indication in in this uh, account that something significant is going to come from Judah. But we also see that the north and the south generally didn't trust each other and and, and oftentimes did not get along very well. There quite possibly was, was tension and a bit of rivalry here. And this would also explain that as Samuel comes to Bethlehem, we find the elders there, we're told, come to him with trembling. And we would think, well, why are they afraid of Samuel? Uh, what, what, what are they concerned about? And I think this speaks to some of the tension and even animosity at times between Judah and the northern tribes. Samuel was known to be the king's man in many ways. He was also from the north. Maybe those from Bethlehem thought he brought um, ill news for them or that this was, there was going to be some... some uh, decree handed down to them from from Saul. They they obviously have a bit of, of hesitation here. But nonetheless, we see that God is pleased to raise up this little town of Bethlehem as a significant place from which the king will come. And we know in the book of Judges, Bethlehem has a mixed history. There were some horrendous and grievous sins that were connected to Bethlehem. It is a place of of rebellion and debauchery in many ways. But then we also see that there's another significant story, and I had to restrain myself from starting another series in the book of Ruth at this point. But as you know, the the story of Ruth also is put between Judges and Samuel. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's called Ruth, but it's actually primarily about Naomi, this woman who, who left Bethlehem into the land of Moab with her husband. Her husband dies and her sons die and she's left with two daughters-in-laws. And uh, they are Moabites. And so naturally she is going to return to Bethlehem and she would have expected her daughter-in-laws to remain behind. But of course, Ruth... Um, being, being loyal to her mother-in-law, says, no, I'm coming with you. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And, and Ruth comes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. 
And then we have this unfolding story, uh, a wonderful story, of, of Boaz, the, the redeemer, who, who sets his favor upon Ruth. And through her, Naomi receives a, a grandson, and, and the Lord brings about a wonderful picture of redemption through the story of Boaz and Ruth. And what's fascinating is this is not only in Bethlehem, but this is actually the grandparents of Jesse. Boaz and Ruth are the uh, ancestors of Jesse. He comes from this line. And so God is, is weaving together this incredible story of redemption that will be, be started in Bethlehem and will come of the line of Jesse. And of course, we know that the prophets speak to this later on in Micah 5.1. We read, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And we read this one that comes, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell secure, and for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. This becomes a significant town, and it is the first clue as to identifying the true king. He will come from the line of Jesse, that stump that seemed to be dead, and yet from it will spring forth a branch that will grow to be a great tree. Let us marvel at the ways of God, the perfection of his plan. We can see how God, in the midst of what might seem to be a very uh, chaotic and unstable time in the life of Israel, God is bringing about his plan of redemption. And that is still true to this day. We can rest in an assurance of God's plan unfolding. And also how God is pleased to take this insignificant, a place like Bethlehem, and to use it for his glory, to use it for his purpose. You know, Paul Brandt, the country singer, which I always hesitate to quote country music, but uh, he seems to think that, that uh, great things come from small towns and big dreams. But actually, as we look at the scriptures, we find it's, it's often small towns with a big God, with God who is able to use these seemingly insignificant things and, and, and leverage them for his glory and his goodness. And that is hopeful for us as well. So the first clue is that the king will come from Jesse of Bethlehem. The second clue then in identifying the true king is that the king is revealed in obscurity due to threat. He's revealed in sort of a veiled way Samuel uh, raises the question to God, well, I, I'm, it's not that I'm, I'm not willing to go, but, but Saul is increasingly becoming uh, unstable. He is clutching to the power. What should have happened is when Samuel fired Saul as king at the uh, word of God, Saul should have handed over that authority uh, to the man of God's choosing. But instead, we see Saul beginning to clutch onto this Position and he becomes dangerous. Samuel knows if I go and I, and everyone's aware what Samuel is. Why is he going to Bethlehem? Oh, he's going to anoint the new king over Israel. Obviously, Samuel is going to be a dead man. And so God gives him the instruction of the sacrifice to veil the true meaning and purpose of his going to Bethlehem 
Now, this sacrifice would have been a voluntary sacrifice, and so it's one that often facilitated a feast for all the worshippers. They, they were able to eat the majority of this sacrifice. And so Samuel makes the roughly nine-mile uh, journey to Bethlehem with this heifer for the sacrifice. And he consecrates Jesse and his sons. They are ceremonially washed and cleaned to come to the sacrifice. But this is all done in obscurity due to the threat of King Saul. And this is very interesting because even as we fast forward to Christ, we see also a similar pattern. In Luke 2.1, we are told that uh, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so God, in a similar fashion, must veil the arrival of Joseph and Mary carrying the, 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 the Christ child in a veiled way through the census that was given. It is Jesus born in obscurity, born in, in, in threat of his life and in the life of his parents. Herod the king, clutching to his power and willing to kill anyone who would threaten it. And yet still we see God sovereignly working over even the decrees and the plans of kings and those who would work against him. See, we don't have to live in fear of all of the uncertainties of political rulers and their scheming and their planning. And today we have, you know, it would seem people eager to, to start a, another world war. And, and we wonder at the, the foolishness of what's happening. And that may bring about fear in our hearts. But you see, God is sovereign over all of these events. He is able to still weave them together to bring about his redemption. And that's what he did here with David and even in a greater sense with Christ so the king is revealed in obscurity due to threat. Thirdly, the clue that we have in revealing the king of God's choosing is we realize the king is precious in God's sight, though he's overlooked by man. The king of God's choosing is precious in the sight of God, though he is overlooked by man. And we have this, this wonderful uh, insight into the ways of God as the first comes in, in verse 6, Eliab, uh, Samuel looks at him. We don't have a lot of description of Eliab, but we can assume as the oldest, he, he uh, may be the tallest. He's probably strong and fit. He's uh, mature. And, and, and Samuel thinks to himself, this must be the next king. And even Samuel falls prey to this, this notion of, of looking simply at the externals and making judgments based on what he sees with his eyes and, he, and hears with his ears. But God speaks to Samuel and gives him this important truth that the Lord, he, he says, don't look on his outward appearance, Samuel, on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, obviously, God could have initially told Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to anoint the youngest son of Jesse, David. He's out in the field caring for the sheep. But God chose to withhold the identity of the king from Samuel in order to teach him and also teach all of us something about the ways of God. 
He is not a God impressed merely by the externals, by the things that man is often impressed by. God is able to look into the very intentions and motivations of the heart, and God himself makes judgments based upon what is within us and not simply what we may appear to be. And there's this strong contrast. And we've already seen in this, in this account, Samuel in uh, chapter 12, 24, told the people, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. And if you back up for a moment to um, 13, if you remember the first time that Saul acted foolishly, he offers the unlawful sacrifice at Gilgal. And in verse 24, Samuel comes to Saul to confront him um, with what he has done. And, um, oh, I think I, sorry, verse um, 14. And we have um, verse 14, Samuel speaking to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so already God had indicated to Samuel that he is seeking out a man after his own heart, that Saul had been rejected, and this one of God's choosing will rule over the people. And um, I want to flip all the way to the New Testament as well, because it's helpful to to think how did the writers of the New Testament understand these events. In uh, Acts 13, we have Paul preaching to the Jews, and he summarizes this very event in Acts 13, 21. And it's interesting to to hear how he uh, describes this. In verse 21 of Acts 13, um, Paul is preaching. And we read, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised And he goes on to proclaim the gospel to them. So this is how they obviously understood it. The rejection of Saul, the appointing of David, a man after God's own heart. And there is the sense in which we might think, well, what is uh, unique about David? I mean, was he he just better than Saul? Was he he born with this this good heart? Uh, what, What exactly is going on there? And... We tend to think that that it's meant in the way that God sees a good heart within David. But actually, in many ways, it it speaks more to the fact that God set his eyes upon David, thus resulting in the good heart. uh, A man after my own heart, that, that could mean, as we often understand it, that David had such a heart, or that God had set his heart and mind upon David, his eye upon David, and as a result, David is this spirit-filled man. 
And I think that's more the meaning here. It is, it is not so much that David had a heart for God, but God set his mercy and grace upon David, is after God's heart, and as a result, David is the man of God's choosing. He is then changed by the Spirit of God. He is given this as a gift, and uh, I think that will um, become evident as well. And so in that sense, this is the experience of the Christian as well. God setting his mercy and grace upon us, us being transformed by the Spirit through the gospel, that we are able to walk in newness of life. This was really the summary of the the new covenant that was given, Jeremiah 31, 31, that I will take out their heart of stone, I will put in a heart of flesh, and they will walk according to my commands. And see, this was already happening in the Old Testament. There there is no other means of salvation outside of God's gracious work within us by his spirit. And, And so men of the Old Testament also had to be born again and God's kindness and mercy set upon them, resulting in righteous living and walking by faith. And so I believe that God had mercifully set his eye upon David. And as a result, we see the fruit of his life. But this principle that the one whom man rejects, God sets up as his anointed. We see David is out in the field. Jesse didn't even think that it was necessary to invite David to the sacrifice because he would have thought to himself, surely David, the youngest, most insignificant of my sons, cannot be the next king of Israel. And so I'll just let him stay out there caring for the sheep while us older ones um, enjoy the feast and see whom God has chosen. And so it's a fascinating picture. We also have this imagery of the stone the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. And this is a verse that is often quoted of Christ himself. He rejected by men, passed over by the religious leaders of the day, by the powerful politicians. Christ um, um, passed over by the, the wisdom of man. But in God, he is the chosen cornerstone. We see these themes established here in First Samuel. The one who is precious in God's sight, but overlooked by man. First Peter 2.7 We read, uh, he's quoting here, Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And God sets this up even as he selects David, the one who was passed over, the one who was rejected, the one out caring for the sheep in an insignificant sort of occupation, God brings forward as his chosen. This also points us forward to Christ and how it is he would be revealed to Israel. And then the fourth and final clue in in enabling us to see the king of God's choosing is that he is anointed abundantly by the Spirit of God. So we have David uh, finally come in to the room. He is, uh, obviously God rejected all the other sons. Samuel inquires about any other sons and says, well, there is one more. There is David. I mean, he's just the, the youngest one. He's out there caring for the sheep. I guess we could get him. 
And as he comes in, we find a description of David and then the anointing of David. And uh, we're told um, they're, they're waiting for him. They're not going to sit down. He, in verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints David in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so it's interesting. We might think, well, shouldn't David be described as ugly or undesirable? Because if it's not about the external appearances, why do we have this description of David as being handsome and these beautiful eyes? Um, Ruddy simply implies red or reddish. Some would take that to mean he had reddish hair. Uh, I I think maybe more in describing his complexion. If he's out caring for the sheep, probably um, suntan from the sun. And so his complexion would have looked uh, ruddy or reddish. And the beautiful eyes. And he is a handsome young man. But obviously we're not told anything of his stature or his strength. Not as Saul was, who was a head taller than everybody else. And when we were described of Saul earlier, he was the most handsome. We were told of Saul there was no one more handsome in all of Israel than Saul. And so I guess David's like a moderate handsome. I don't know exactly. But um, I was listening to, there's a guy I find helpfully, a Hebrew teacher, Chad Bird. He made the comment that whenever you have a description of somebody's appearance in the Old Testament, especially, that that is important. That is not something that is normally done. And oftentimes... It is, it is to indicate something that is going to happen later or it is, it, it is symbolic uh, of something. And, and so I, I actually tried to message him to see if he had any thoughts about the description of David here. Uh, I did not hear back, unfortunately. So I don't want to read too much into the description. I mean, obviously, there, there's a sense of radiance about David, a sense of, of beauty. It is interesting that a similar description we find throughout even the Song of Solomon Uh, We find in the Psalms, in regards to the king, he is the most handsome. Uh, And and so I think there's more going on in this imagery of David, this picture of David, than just the physical appearance. There's obviously that. Um, Even the eyes for the the Hebrew people, the eye was significant uh, as a picture of of the soul, in a sense. Um, Jesus would pick up on this in the Gospel of... uh, um, in, in Luke's Gospel 11, I won't read all of it for the sake of time, but how the eye is a window to the soul and it gives light to the body. So there almost seems to be a bit of a, a, a symbolic uh, imagery going on here as to the, the soul of this man. The, the eyes um, possibly in the Hebrew mind would have, have connected that more to even a, a, a reflection of the inner beauty of this man. But like I said, I don't want to read too much into that. If I come across anything else helpful, I'll certainly let you know. But he's a young man. He is uh, a handsome man. But obviously, as they were thinking about a potential king, David did not come to mind. He was out left in the field. And yet we have the final clue then, which is the anointing of, of, uh, of David. I already mentioned how Saul, we were told, was anointed with a flask of oil. And here we have the horn of oil. I do think that is significant. It is something of an indication of the, the longevity of David's rule, um, the, the horn of strength that he is anointed with. What else is very interesting is when Saul was anointed as king, 
we have the sign given to him that he will come across some prophets and he will prophesy in their presence, enabled by the Spirit of God. But for Saul, it seemed to be a very temporal, brief experience. Here, we are told of David that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, empowering him for this role as king, but remains with David, we're told, from that day forward. And, and so it's, again, this picture of longevity, of the anointing with the oil, the anointing of the Spirit, which remains with David as God's chosen one. And, of course, this also will point us forward. We know David was still vulnerable to sin. He was still a man who had need of repentance. He would sin grievously later in his life and would pray, Lord, Restore to me the joy of of your salvation. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Um, He is a a type. He is pointing us to Christ. And we read in John 3, speaking of Christ and his anointing, again, in a similar fashion, but in a greater way. John 3, we have John the Baptist testifying of Christ, the anointed. Let's read a few verses for you. John 3.34, John the Baptist uh, faithfully pointing to Christ as the faithful witness. And he says, uh, verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we have this picture of Christ anointing, uh, not with oil, we don't see that carry over, but we see this picture of the Spirit of God. John says, I saw the Spirit descending upon Christ as though a dove. And Jesus, we're told, anointed by the Spirit without measure as the God-man. Remember, with Christ, he is the one person in all of the universe who has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And this dual nature of Christ makes him stand unique among all of God's creation. But even the Father himself was not joined to humanity. It was not the Spirit who was joined to humanity. It was Christ who joined himself to our humanity. And so in his humanity, he was empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit who was given to him without measure. And you remember John's words as well, that I baptize you with water, but one who is coming after me whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so you have this picture of Christ, the anointed of God, who will then pour out his spirit to the citizens of his kingdom, and there will be fire and judgment upon those who reject him. This all points us forward to Christ, the true king, the one of God's choosing. And as we look unto Christ as the king, as we behold him, as we, as we follow these clues, these indications that the Father is giving to us, we are saved, we are transformed, we are forgiven of our sins, and we are brought into his kingdom, we are given that heart of flesh, we too are given of his spirit. And so I ask you this morning, have you come to the true king of Israel? Have you bowed the knee to this king? Jesus would ask his disciples in Matthew 16, 13, who do you say, who do people say the son of man is? And 
They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he asks them pointedly, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so the question for us is, have we truly beheld Christ? Have we looked upon him, trusted in him? Are we worshiping him? Because what happens as you look upon Christ with faith, then you are also changed more and more into his likeness. You are born again and you are sanctified. You are changed day by day to be like this king. And we have no excuse to miss him. God has graciously prepared the way. He has given us all the pointers that we need to come unto Christ. We need to daily come to Christ. If you say, yes, I have repented and I have believed upon Christ and I have received this king, I am trusting in him. Well, then we must go on seeking after this king. Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And so daily, as followers of the king, we are to seek after him, being changed into his likeness, coming to his word, partaking of the means of grace, coming here together. This isn't just about seeing one another or enjoying the fellowship, but it is about beholding Christ, experiencing his presence among his people through his word and through the ordinances that he has given. We must press on in seeking to know him as he truly is. And we must repent And turn from the things that dull our senses, that distract our minds, distract our loyalties. Confess that to God, that we might see him rightly. And even faith, it's interesting, we, a few weeks back, we're looking at faith in our Wednesday study. And faith is often described of having three parts of it. There is, first of all, the, the, the knowledge. You must hear the truth. You must know the truth which is the first part of what true faith is. And then there must be the assent to that truth. So not only do you hear it, but you affirm it as true. You say, yes, I believe that's true. I think that's accurate. But that's also not the final part of faith. The final aspect is to to trust it, to cling to it, to put on Christ. You see, even the demons acknowledge Christ as king and they acknowledge his deity and they acknowledge that he came in the flesh and died and rose again. But it does them no good because there is no trust. There is no love and delight in this king. And this is where our great battle lies. We, we have to continually grab ourselves by the scruff of the neck and say, do you see him? Do you behold him? Are you searching for him? Are you coming to know more of him in his word and in the means that he has given? That stinging rebuke to the church at Ephesus that you are doing all of these things so well. You have refuted false teachers. You are holding fast to the truth. But he says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And if you don't repent, then I will remove your lampstand as well. See, we like to point fingers at the church at Laodicea, the the ones who have, have given themselves over to immorality, but also we have to ask ourselves, am I seeking for this king? Am I desiring to know him rightly? Is my heart growing in love and admiration for this king? Or is he merely a means to an end 
for me to go on with my life. Let us humble ourselves before him. Let us give thanks to God who has graciously pointed the way to this king. Let's close with prayer and uh, we'll have a final song together. Lord, as the uh, hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, we know this is a constant battle for us, especially in a, a land with so much wealth and so much distractions, Lord. It's so easy for us to find our delight in the, the things of this world or put our hope in, in a government or a, uh, a new government or, Lord, an economy or whatever it might be. But Father, I pray that you would help us to follow these clues, these indications that you have given us, leading us to Christ, helping us to know for sure with certainty he is the Messiah. He is the one who is promised. And we pray for receptive hearts around this community or within our homes. We, we think even of uh, the nations that are raging, Lord. We think of Israel today, the, the one who, who, Lord, were primarily uh, initially responsible for having rejected the stone that you put forth. And still, by and large, their hearts are hardened against Christ, the Messiah. We pray even in the midst of all the turmoil and suffering that, that there would be a turning to Christ, a beholding the King, the, the son of Jesse, the, the one born in Bethlehem. And Father, I pray as well, we think of uh, the, the, the Muslim community. We think of, uh, Lord, the, the, the Canadians and Native Americans. We think of, uh, Lord, just people all around us from all over the world that you would help us to have a heart of compassion and, Lord, a desire to, to show them the, the love of Christ in our words, our actions, our attitudes. And, Lord, that you would give us opportunity to point them to this King. And that we might rejoice uh, in his presence and hold fast to the hope of his return. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.